Thank you, Mackenzie. Appreciate you reading that. Oh, man. So it has been quite a season. I don't know how you guys think about your calendar in your brain, but from about Halloween to the Super Bowl is nonstop, right? And it's not just nonstop, but it's nonstop eating. And despite what um, New Year's resolutions you may have set, now that we're past the Super Bowl, it's time to start getting serious about what we eat, right? So it's, it's, the, it's the season of salads, the ultimate diet food. Now, how do you, I, this, let me just tell you how I like my salad, okay? I love a good salad. Lettuce. I even like spinach. When we got married, I didn't like spinach, but my wife has gotten me to where I like spinach. And that's all I used to put, like lettuce and dressing salad, right? Uh, no, but now it's like I got some bell peppers on there. That's good stuff. Maybe a little, little black beans, some corn for some color, right? Okay. Uh, but I also, I like that salad to stick to my ribs a little bit. So I'll, I'll put, if I'm at a salad bar, I'll put some like chicken on there. And sometimes there's some ham. So I'll put a little ham on there. And the good salad bars have some bacon. So you put that, you put that bacon on, and it doesn't count because it's a salad, right? So it like cancels out the bacon, maybe some cheese, finish it off with a hard-boiled egg, right? Crouton, sunflower seeds, and then slather the whole thing in ranch dressing. Salad, right? Health food. That thing has more calories on it than a Big Mac and a large fry, right? That is a 2,000-calorie salad. Delicious, right? Okay, so at the end of the day, this salad, which is a healthy choice, it's no longer a healthy choice by, we put, by the time we put all that on it, right? It, it's actually worse for you than a lot of the decisions you can make out there. Uh, and if you ate that kind of salad every day for lunch, you would not lose weight, you would gain weight. So it's, what we have here is something that sounds and looks good, but if you just give it a little bit of a glimpse of inspection, you just think about it for a second, you go, this thing that looks good, you tell people you got a salad for lunch, they go, hey, good choice. Way to go. But if you look just a little bit, you see this is not a health food. This is yet another poor decision on the same lines as many of the other decisions you've made from Halloween to the Super Bowl, right? So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story of Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman. And we'll see that you can dress up sin any way you want and try to make it look spiritually healthy. But at the end of the day, this story is about two sinners... Not one. One's just a salad with ranch dressing on it, right? It sounds good, but at the end of the day, this story is about two sinners, not just one. Now, Luke paints a picture for us uh, with his words that show us just how sneaky we can be in, in justifying things in our mind games. A good storyteller wants his readers to begin to identify with different characters in the story. And I, I think for, for most of us, maybe not all of us, but for most of us, when we read a story, we want to be the hero. We want to be the person who gets it. We want to be the one who solves the problem, or we want to identify with the one who shines brightest in the end. Now, for those of us who grew up in the church, we are predisposed to think of the Pharisees as the bad guys. Okay, we, we know better, right? We, we hear about the Pharisees, and immediately our mind says, these 
are the bad guys. And even in the book of Luke, we're starting to see as we get into chapter 7 that these are the people who are opposing Jesus. And despite social convention, maybe the Pharisees are the bad guys. But in our story in Luke 7, we have a Pharisee who invites Jesus over to his house for dinner. And this is a good thing. This is a kind thing. I think if we all lived in the time of Jesus, we would like to think that we would have Jesus over to our house for dinner. So this is a very kind and normal gesture. So as the story kicks off, we don't have any moral judgment about this Pharisee. He's just a Pharisee. And our our, uh, verse 40 gives him a name. So verse 40 says his name is Simon. Simon is just a guy, just a Pharisee, that has invited Jesus over to a meal in his house. And then we see an unexpected guest arrive. So let's just go ahead and look at verse 36 and verse 37 again as we begin to unpack our passage today. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, they didn't sit on chairs in that day and age, okay? So when they reclined at the table, they would, it was a low table, and they would lay down on cushions with their feet out kind of behind them, laying diagonally as they ate, and they would eat, eat that way, not at the table and chairs. So they reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now we're going to stop right there in the middle of the sentence. Okay, so Luke sets the scene for us. Our story is really about three people. There's Jesus, there's Simon the Pharisee, and there is the sinful woman. Jesus and Simon are having dinner at Simon's house when this sinful woman comes in. Now imagine you've never heard this story. Who might you be predisposed to be in this story? How might you insert yourself? Now, if you say Jesus, we've probably got another problem we need to talk about for another day. We'll save that one, though, okay? All right, so who do you think you would be? Uh, who, Who would you be? Would you be the sinful woman, or would you be the Pharisee, Simon, hosting Jesus in your house? I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer, though. As we move through this story, I think you might find yourself identifying with one or the other. And as we move through the story, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to push you into a mold. But I want you to, to be honest with yourself. If I were here, if this was my life, who would I be more likely to be? All right, now let's talk about these two people for a minute to see what we know uh, about them. All right, so first off, Simon is a Pharisee. Simon is a Pharisee, which is not an office that we have in our culture today. But basically what this means is he's a religious leader in the community. Now, he wasn't a priest, okay, but his leadership in business, he was probably a, a business leader in the community, and his dedication to the Old Testament law would have given him this a uh, good reputation among the people. They would have seen him and said, oh yeah, that guy's a good guy. 
All right, so many Pharisees uh, were actually religious leaders in part because of their business prowess. So chances are this guy had a little bit of money. He may not have been overly wealthy, but he would have been at least, I mean, the fact that he was having this party at his house, he would have at least had a little bit amount of money. All right, now, they love to set themselves apart. So the other thing is they dressed in such a way that made them stand out different from the rest of the people in the community. So just by looking at them, you can say that this person was special, that there was something good about them, and they'd be lumped in a group of people that had a good reputation. Then there's this sinful woman. Okay, now, we don't, we don't know a lot about her. We don't even get her name. In fact, throughout the whole story, she never speaks. So she never says anything, and she doesn't have a name. She is merely identified as a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, we don't even, we don't even get what her sin was. The passage doesn't tell us. Anybody who wants to tell you what she did, there's some speculation that she may have been a prostitute or at least an adulteress. The passage doesn't say. It just says that she is a sinner. Now, now think about that for a second. Her only reputation is that she is a sinner. Everybody would have known by seeing her, at least many people would have known by seeing her, that this was a woman of a low reputation. Okay, so we need to note the obvious dichotomy here. We have a man of good and righteous reputation and a woman of poor and sinful reputation. And Jesus, quite literally, right in the middle of it. All right, now... This whole meal is kind of uh, a weird situation for us culturally. This doesn't make any sense. I mean, what would you do if some crazy woman came into your house while you're having a, a friend over and starts acting this way? Like, you would be on the phone with the cops. Get this lady out of my house. Okay, it was a different situation back then. Um, this would have been a, uh, a public meal. So in this particular situation, I want you to think about it like this. Uh, Simon is a a religious leader in the community. Jesus is this guy who's being perceived as a prophet. He's a a powerful teacher. And uh, think of it like on Sunday, um, we have a guest speaker here at church. And then after church, you invite that person over to your house for lunch. Okay, so it's very possible that this was like a Sabbath meal uh, after the Sabbath readings in the synagogue. Um, Simon the Pharisee has Jesus over to his house. Now, this kind of situation is literally an open-door invitation. They would literally leave the door open to the house, and then the people in the community could come and overhear the conversation. They would come, and they would kind of sit along the outside of the room while the important people were at table having a meal, and they could be a part. But also, in the middle of all this, uh, was the opportunity to, uh, maybe if you were poor and needed a meal, you got a chance to, uh, to partake of the leftovers of the meal. So to have a strange person come into your house was, was normal in this situation. However, what she did was certainly not normal. Okay? Being there, normal. Her activity, not normal. 
All right, how does our, how does our passage continue? Let's read. All right, picking up in the middle of our sentence in verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. All right, so what do we see from this woman? She never says a word. She doesn't announce why she's there. She doesn't make a spectacle about her intentions. We just see her come to the feet of Jesus. And we see her show tremendous humility. I would even go as far as to say that humility is too kind. We see humiliation. We see totally that she humiliated herself at the feet of Jesus. And what is she actually doing? Luke says she began to weep. She cried on Jesus' feet and used her hair to wash his feet. And she kissed his feet and she anointed Jesus' feet with ointment. Now what we see is worship. She comes to Jesus and she begins to worship him. Later we see in verse 50 that Jesus commends her faith. There's far more that's going on here than than a woman uh, offering adoration to an influential or powerful man. This isn't homage, okay? This is worship. Luke points out her sinfulness in a way that communicates that her reputation was common knowledge. Every indication in our story is that she knows exactly who she is, and she knows that she is a sinner. And this sinner was compelled to seek Jesus and literally fall at his feet and worship. Verse 37 says that she brought a jar of ointment. Now, that may seem like an odd detail to throw in there other than the fact that she anoints Jesus' feet. But, But think about this. This is a woman out in the town who hears that Jesus is going to be at Simon's house. She goes home, she gets the jar of ointment, and then she goes to Simon's house to see Jesus. This is not one of those things where she's caught up in the emotion of the moment. This was intentional. This took planning. She wanted to do this. She decided to do this. Now, did all did, did she think, okay, now when I get there, I'm going to cry, and I'm going to wash, wash his feet with my hair. I, I doubt that. But she definitely came to acknowledge who Jesus was and to worship him. Now, why do I say worship? I think this woman gives us a powerful example of what worship is. So if you're taking notes at home, I want you to to look at her actions and see three things that she does that demonstrates worship. The first thing we see is that she is broken over her sin. She is broken over her sin. The imagery shows that she came with a repentant heart. So what is part of worship is this uh, part of this woman's example? Part of worship 
is being broken over our sin. Understanding just how great God is and how our sin separates us from him. Now, in this uh, brokenness over her sin, we see the second thing that she does. She totally humbled herself before Jesus. She's broken over her sin, and she's humble before Jesus. I mean, look at her posture. Down on her knees, crying over his feet. His feet. That is absolutely a sign of humbling. And then we see the third thing that she sets in her example. She gave sacrificially to Jesus. We don't know about her means or how she earns her money. People speculate all over the place as to why she brought this. We don't, we don't know, okay? But she, she had this gift, and we know it's of value. And she gave sacrificially to Jesus. This is a powerful example of worship. When we think about how we might want to worship or how we need to worship, we'd be right to follow her example, to be broken over our sin, to humble ourselves and give sacrificially to the Lord. I, I think we are quick, quick to dismiss financial giving as what we see here, that we say, oh, we give our time, we give our energy, those things are important too. But I want you to see here that part of her worship is giving financially through this gift to the Lord. Now, she, she, she set aside what pride she may have had left, and she quite literally threw herself at the feet of Jesus. Now, as we think about worship, this is an odd mix of boldness and humility, isn't it? I mean, what kind of crazy person comes into a Pharisee's house and launches themselves at the feet of Jesus? Now, as, as humbling and humiliating as that is, that's actually quite bold, what an interesting contrast to see that part of what it is to humble ourselves before Jesus actually requires a great deal of strength. It, it requires a great deal of intentionality to come boldly before Jesus. But here's the thing. He accepted her. The sinner comes into Jesus' presence, makes a fool of herself, humbles her, herself, ruins the party, kills the mood of everything that's going on, and Jesus does not turn her away. That's an important part of this story that we don't want to miss. She made herself vulnerable. She lowered herself. She, her reputation is everywhere as a sinner. She comes into the presence of Jesus, and Jesus lets her worship. That's some powerful imagery for us. This notion, this notion that we have to come in cleaned up with a good reputation. That we have to be the one right in the eyes of everyone else to be received in worship before the Lord. Now, here's what's interesting. This woman comes in in this genuine act of worship Jesus accepts her, but the Pharisee Simon, the host, 
not impressed at all. In fact, he's just the opposite. He's mortified. He's offended at this woman's sin. Let's see how the, the story goes on. Now, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Let me tell you, he knew, and she was welcome. Now, Simon makes a clear distinction between himself and this woman. Simon thinks that Jesus, an itinerant rabbi, would be honored to have been invited to a home such as his, right? Okay, Simon seems to think that just Jesus being invited should make Jesus feel important. Simon sees himself as worthy of Jesus. I, I think I would go as far as to say that Simon sees Jesus as being just worthy enough to come into his house and have a meal. Now, this is in direct contrast. I want you to think about a couple weeks ago when we talked about the Roman centurion. Earlier, just a few sections ago in chapter 7, the Roman centurion who sent a delegation to go talk to Jesus because he, he said, what, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. Now here we have this Pharisee who clearly is establishing himself as somebody who is worthy of Jesus coming in to his house. So we see a, a contrast here between the centurion, and of course we see a contrast between Simon and this sinful woman. We need to see that Simon thinks that he is better than this woman. Luke presents Simon almost like a peacock, right? Like with his tail feathers showing off. In this case, his, his tail feathers, for all to see, is his self-righteousness. So the contrast between these two people is stark and intentional. There is a broken, humbled sinner, and there is a puffed-up, self-righteous sinner. Two sinners, right there. Make no mistake, Luke is painting us a clear picture that both people are sinners. The difference is, one knows she is, and the other's in total denial. Now, I mentioned this earlier, that when we read stories, the author often wants us to identify with someone in the story. And at this point, I, who do you want to identify with, right? Right, like, this is uncomfortable. As we start to think about who we might be in this story, there are no good options except for Jesus, and you're not him. Okay? So there are no good options here. Do I want to identify with a woman who knows she's a sinner and publicly humiliated herself? Or do I want to identify with the self-righteous religious leader who's kind of a jerk? Neither one are good. But I love the way Jesus interacts in this story. He redeems the situation. Let's keep walking through the story and see how Jesus clarifies things. It says in verse 40, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Hey, humility, right? Like he wants, he, oh, teach me, teacher, right? 
A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. All right, now, what's the point of this parable? What's going on here? Both have debt. Both. And both cannot pay. Both have debt and both cannot pay. It's just that one person is in so deep, there's no denying the fact that they'll never get out on their own. All right? So from, from the, this desperation, the one with the bigger debt is so much more grateful because they know just how big that burden is. Jesus wants us to know that the woman is clearly the one who had the bigger debt canceled. She has been forgiven much. In fact, that's exactly what he says in verse 47. He says, her sins are many. And because her sins were many, he says that she loved much. But, but let me tell you how I see this person with the smaller debt. Jesus makes it pretty clear that neither can pay. All right, But a smaller debt of 50 denarii can be so, so tempting. Now, let's, let's put this in today's money. So uh, a denarii is about a day's wage. So 500 days wages. We're talking about a, about a year and a half of, of working here. So if you made $50,000 a year, that makes that $75,000. Now, if you're in the hole 75 grand and you don't have a job, that number is huge. How am I ever going to pay off $75,000? Now, the other owes 50 denarii, so 50 days' wages. Now, it's, it's one-tenth. We're, we're saying, so uh, uh, about, a, about a month and a half or so, let's call it $7,500. Now, if you owed somebody $7,500, I mean, that's a lot of money. That's a sizable amount of money. I'm not trying to say that's nothing, okay? It's something. It's definitely something. But I mean, $7,500, how many of you guys have cleared $7,500 worth of debt before? And that's, that's very attainable. That's very doable. So we can start looking at that $7,500 worth of debt, that, that $50, that 50 denarii of debt, and we can start saying to ourselves, I can pay that back. I, I can do that. You see how it's tempting? That little, I'm not deep in debt. I'm not crazy in debt. This is something I can manage. This is something I can do. I don't need any help with that. I just need a little more time. Do you see the temptation with that little bit of debt? That little bit of debt that says, I can do it if I have a little more time. The thing here is, as, as I read this story, Jesus is being generous to Simon. Just saying, all right, so there's this person with 500 days worth of debt and another with 50. Jesus being generous, saying, see yourself as the guy with 50. But you know, you know what I think about Simon and his self-righteousness? He's so deluded, he thinks this is two different people. I think Simon is so deluded that he doesn't even think he's in debt. 
He doesn't see himself in the story at all. He thinks this is a dumb analogy. What's this have to do with me, right? Okay, yeah, so she's a sinner. She's worse than some of these other people out there. You see that distancing himself. Distancing himself from their sin. And not understanding that this is about him as well. A self-righteous person, okay, when they're in debt in this way, says, I'm living it up, right? But all the while, the bank is coming for their car and their house. They're putting up this front that says, everything is great. And yet the repo man is on the way. Let me see if I can help uh, you see the, this kind of self-righteousness in another way. So in, in my mind, okay, just think, think about who Simon is. Okay, and I want you to imagine a homeless person. No job, no cash, no assets to sell, totally broke. All right, now you take this guy and you, uh, you, you give him a good, long, hot shower. You take him to the barber. He gets a nice haircut, gets a good shave. You put him in designer clothes and you take him to a fancy restaurant. Now he looks the part. He looks like he belongs there. We start ordering all the food, and, and by the time you and, and your new friend are done, you got a bill up around 300 bucks, right? 300 bucks. And that bill comes. Does what this guy looks like equip him to pay? No. Now you think $300, that's a lot of money, but it's not that much money. That's, that, that's something you can do, just like that 7,500. It's something you can do. But when you have nothing, the difference between $5 and $5 million is the same because you have nothing. You, you can't pay it back. And that's where Simon is, totally blind to the fact that he is broke and in debt. The difference is Simon looks the part. But no matter what he looks like, he's not qualified for a job that will enable him to pay off his debt. So this deception that rules his life is twofold. Okay? The twofold deception that, that the Pharisee Simon faces. First, he thinks looking the part of righteous is, as, is, is the most important thing. He thinks that looking the part of being righteous is the most important thing. The way you look, your reputation, the way you're perceived, these are the things that actually make you righteous. And second, he seems to believe that he has the means to pay off his debts or that he's already paid them. He may not even think he was in debt to begin with. It's all about the outward appearances. Right, in the next section, Jesus begins to flip the table and show Simon how he missed the mark. Let's look at verses 44 through 46. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has, set, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now here Jesus points out just how badly Simon missed the joy of what was happening. Now, Simon questions Jesus as to whether or not he's a prophet. 
But Jesus is questioning Simon, whether he's really as righteous as he thinks he is. Now, if Simon was as righteous as he thought he was, his attitude in this moment would be different. If Simon was really righteous, Simon should be celebrating the repentance of a sinner. Think about that for a second. We should celebrate with those who confess their sins before the Lord and seek forgiveness. If he was really righteous, where should his heart be? His heart should be glad and filled with joy for what he sees happening in this woman's life. Instead, he has sour grapes because this woman has ruined his party. Now, Jesus counterpoints all the actions of this sinful woman by showing what Simon did not do. There's no water for his feet. There was no kiss of greeting, no oil for his head. What Jesus is saying is that if Simon was truly righteous, he would have at least done the basics of common hospitality. He wasn't even a good host. He thinks he's righteous and he's not even hospitable. But if he was like this sinful woman and was able to recognize who Jesus was, then he would have worshipped just like she did. Because recognizing who Jesus is inspires worship. Jesus closes this section of Luke 7 by making something very clear. This woman is the one who is righteous. And she is the one who knows how to worship. She isn't righteous because of anything she did, but because of the grace of Jesus and the forgiveness of her sins. Simon, on the other hand, I think that Luke kind of leaves Simon out there as an ellipsis, a little dot, dot, dot. Simon's out there just hanging for his readers to assume about. Simon is not forgiven. At the end of the story, Simon is the one who is left unrighteous. Simon is the one who is still the sinner. Flipped it. Listen to how the passage ends. Jesus says this in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus forgives her sins. And what does he say? What does he say saved her? Her faith saved her. That faith and that boldness go hand in hand. 
total humility, but total boldness to come into that house. The faith that she would come before Jesus, offer her worship, and be accepted. That she would grieve her sins and praise him for her forgiveness. And she believed that that worship and confession would be accepted. She could come to him with boldness because she believed he would accept her. That's the challenge that we have before us today. That idea that in our faith, we can come boldly before a holy and truly righteous God and confess our sin. We can be grieved alongside God for our sin. We can lower ourselves and humiliate ourselves before the Lord because he already knows. And not only that, we sang earlier, I said to Elise, this is the perfect song, we already know that Jesus paid it all. Praise the one who paid my debt. That's what we sang, right? Where do you think that came from? This story and others like it in Scripture where we see that our debts are paid by the righteous work of Jesus Christ. And it is by her faith that she comes boldly before Jesus confessing her sin that she's forgiven. And how does she get to leave? She gets to leave in peace. She gets to leave in peace. The woman with a bad reputation. The woman who got all kinds of dirty looks as she walked into that room. The woman who probably got dirty looks the whole walk to the house. Who's left in turmoil and shame? Simon, the self-righteous, who's too proud to confess his sin. I want you to think about these two lives before Christ. One, the self-righteous. Okay, the self-righteous, who had a good reputation, was able to rest in probably some material wealth, who had enough food to share with some of his neighbors. That sounds like a pretty peaceful life. What more can you want than a good name and enough food to share? That's a good life. Compare that to the woman who was sinful. Looking over her shoulder, unsettled. She was known as a sinner. They meet Jesus. One goes in peace, and the other lacks it. That's huge. That's powerful. What is the way to peace in the kingdom of heaven and eternity? So much of that is wrapped up in the example we see in this woman's worship. She came in in faith. She was broken over her sin and confessed them before the Lord. She humbled herself and gave a sacrificial gift to the Lord. And what did she receive but acceptance and forgiveness? She's not saved by that sacrificial giving. That sacrificial giving is worship because she was accepted and she knew she could find hope and peace 
in Jesus Christ. Now, when I think about us here, Springfield, Missouri, where do we live? Man, we live in the buckle of the Bible Belt. And even though I think many of us have observed recently that that Springfield is is becoming more and more post-Christian, as far as cultures in America go, we are definitely still very much in the buckle of the Bible Belt. So when I think about life here in the buckle of the Bible Belt, uh, we as church-going regulars probably have more in common with Simon than we do the sinful woman. Yet Luke records this story for us because he wants us to desire what she has. Luke wants us to desire forgiveness and peace because that's what we need. But the Bible Belt self-righteous religious person is often left offended by the sins of others. The Bible Belt self-righteous religious person is often, uh, often deflects attention from their own sins by focusing on the sinners of the world. As Bible Belt, dare I say, self-righteous religious people, we have to see the wonderful example that this woman sets for us. She humbles herself and expresses her need for Jesus and worships him. We cannot allow ourselves to get caught up in a cycle that says, at least I'm not that guy. At least I'm not that girl. At the end of the day, any self-righteousness is sin. It is not true righteousness found in Christ And if Simon were truly righteous, he would have rejoiced with the repentant sinner instead of thanking God he wasn't like her. That is my challenge to us today. What do we need to repent of? Both people in this story need to repent. The woman needed to repent of her sins, which everybody knew about, and the self-righteous guy needed to repent of his little more private and, and maybe socially acceptable sins. As we told the story, as you look at Luke, what's, what did the Spirit bring to your mind? What did he put in your heart? What are the sins that you know you have said, oh, at least I'm not as bad as that guy or that girl? How has this example of her lack of shame, because everybody knew her business, how is that challenging you for one who maybe hides their sin in the dark? Where is freedom found? Freedom is found worshiping, humbly at the feet of Jesus. As the praise team comes, we have our opportunity to respond. The altar's open for us to lay down our needs or burdens before him to respond in whatever way the Spirit is is working on you. So as we sing these two songs, it's a chance for us to respond to him, to, to not feel like we're in a hurry, to do the business we need to do with him. If you're here and, and you want to know more about what it is to trust in Jesus and seek him for forgiveness, I'd be glad to talk to you or you can find a believer around you and they'd love to tell you more about what it is to follow Jesus. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for the way that you accepted this woman. That you did not turn her away. But you used her humility 
to challenge the person who was a little, not a little, a lot self-righteous and arrogant. Lord, I pray that those of us who've never experienced or known rebellion would be humbled by this example, that we can repent of our self-righteousness. Help us to know of our great need for you. Our sins are all many, but we praise you that your mercy is more. Lord, I pray that you'd receive this worship as we sing. It's in your name we pray. Amen.